So my dad passed away in 2015. We weren't talking and it took a month for his family to track me down. Before I ever knew he was gone, I started hearing from him in heaven. It consumed me. How is communication with the other side even possible? I left my corporate gig, studied with spiritual teachers on every coast, and worked with my angels to figure out the answers. Today, my mission is teaching you how to raise your vibration, shift your thoughts, trust your intuition, develop your unique spiritual gifts, and connect with your loved ones and angels on the other side. Friends, when you have these tools, life really does become heaven on earth. Hello, beautiful souls. Welcome to the Angels and Awakening podcast. We are here with Sensei Alex Kyoko. He is somebody who has been on the podcast before. If you want to check out his past episode, we really dived into an overview of different Buddhist teachings. Sensei Kyoko has his own book that came out in 2020, Perfectly Ordinary, Buddhist Teachings for Everyday Life. And you can find that on Amazon. You can buy that. Please buy that book because it is just such a beautiful way to incorporate um, Buddhist teachings into your life. And what we found as a podcast community in 2020 was that when we had uh, healers on like Sensei Kyoko, we wanted to go deeper, right? Like I remember getting off the first podcast episode with you and being like, that was one of my favorite episodes ever. And there's just like, I could talk to you for an entire week. There's so much deeper that we want to go. And so what I'm really excited about for the podcast audience is that in 2021, we're going to have different series of episodes with the same healer on the show. So that we can really go deeper for the individual being that they can learn how to go deeper within themselves into their own healing. And, and we're, we're starting here today. What I do want to say is that this does take time, right? So Sensei Kyoko kindly is giving us four hours of his time. And if you get value out of this, please consider just giving him a contribution we can't say it's a donation because uh, we're not, not not nonprofits, but if you go to the same old Zen, you can make a contribution. Sensei Kyoko has the book that we really recommend that you purchase. Sensei Kyoko also does some one-on-one work with people when they're willing to make a contribution, a donation. So if you want to reach out to him, we've got his email in the show notes. And we're starting with suffering. We're going to be understanding suffering and overview of suffering. We're going to be identifying our own sources of suffering in the second episode together. We're also going to have a third episode where we talk about transforming our pain into healing and love, how we can work skillfully with the unpleasantness that we experience so that it fills us with love and hope instead of fear and hate. 
We're going to be talking in the fourth episode together about techniques for staying grounded in love and forgiveness. What some techniques are that we can use to remain grounded in love and express forgiveness when we or other people we care for are harmed. So Sensei, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here again. Yay. I want to start out with this. We're going to dive into suffering and you're going to do a teaching for us uh, where I'm just going to mute myself. Before we do, you know, in our first podcast episode together, we talked about how life is suffering. And what I want to just kind of convey is that in these four episodes together, We're not really looking at the suffering of oppressed people, right? We're not looking at normalizing oppression. We're looking at individuals and the individual life and where we are suffering in our day-to-day life. You could say the people who have everything, right? We have money, we have family, we have a great job, we have all of the things, and yet still that happiness is not filling us up right? Can you kind of talk to us about the difference there and what we're concentrating on today? Sure, absolutely. So when we talk about suffering, it's important that we understand there are multiple sources of suffering in the world and that they can all exist at the same time in the same way that there are multiple sources of joy in the world and those can exist at the same time. So we have the joy we receive from getting a good night's rest, which is largely something we're doing for ourselves. But we also have the joy that we receive when we receive a paycheck and we're able to use that to pay bills and buy food for the family. So we have individual joy in the first example, and then we have more of a systemic joy, uh, something coming from outside ourselves in the second example. And they are both real. And when we talk about suffering, it's exactly the same thing. We have the suffering that's caused from our own personal decisions and actions, but we also have systemic suffering that comes from government, let's say, or from corporations. And both of those, again, are real, and we need to address both. In fact, in my book, Perfectly Ordinary Buddhist Teachings for Everyday Life, I'm careful to talk about both of those and how Buddhism can help us in both of those situations. Uh, Today, however, I'm going to be speaking specifically about suffering that we create for ourselves in our personal lives. And I do this primarily to follow the Buddha's example. When he spoke about suffering and the end of suffering, he started with the individual, not because systemic suffering isn't real or shouldn't be addressed. It's simply that Our largest area of control in our lives is ourselves. So if we're trying to eliminate or reduce suffering as much as we can, the way we get the fastest results, the way we get the surest results is dealing with our own personal behavior. Again, not saying that systemic suffering isn't real or that it doesn't need to be addressed, but when we deal with ourselves first, we're girding ourselves and strengthening ourselves so that we're better able to deal with the systemic suffering that also exists in the world. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. 
beautiful souls, I am so, so, so excited to announce that starting February 1st for $100 a month annually, you get access to a new e-course each month. Yes, you heard that right. Friends, last year you asked me the best questions like, how do I awaken? How do I connect with my angels more? You asked me, Julie, which of your courses should I take first? We've simplified everything for you. Starting February 1st, when you become an angel member, your angels and I are going to guide you through a journey of spiritual healing one month at a time. In February, we're starting with holding a high vibration and the energy of oneness. In March, we're teaching you how to build a relationship with your spirit team. In April, we're diving into teaching you how to trust your intuition. In May, the angels are going to show you how to access your soul's purpose. The rest of the year, we're diving into how to rewire your brain, self-energy healing and chakra clearing, inner child work and ancestral trauma, learning to speak your truth, sacred angel work, and so, so much more. All of this information builds upon one another, and it's best to start February 1st if you can. But if you're listening to the podcast and that date has passed, no worries. You can still become a member and we'll guide you on which lessons to view first to get up to speed. Some people have asked, will I have access to all of your other courses when I become a member? Over the course of the year, we will cover and expand upon all that was in the High Vibration and Angel Communication e-courses in the Angel Membership. However, the Angel Reiki School is separate and different as it helps you develop your unique spiritual gifts to serve others. While Angel Membership walks you through your spiritual growth and angel connection month after month. Each month, you'll get four new teachings, two Reiki healing recordings, and two live group question and answer Zoom calls. You'll also get a workbook, a community chat in Thinkific, and so much more. Go to the website The Angel Medium to become an angel member today. Purchase the Angel Reiki School, or if you just like to take the previous Angel Communication e-course, you can sign up for all of those on the website. But again, that information will be covered and expanded upon in the Angel Membership. Links are in the show notes. Friends, this is going to be the biggest year of expansion, growth, and healing for you. Thank you so much for letting me be a part of it. So I know you've got a teaching for us today. I'm going to let you take it over and and take it away. Thanks so much. So my name is Sensei Alex Kakuya, and the title of today's Dharma talk is Developing a Holistic View of Suffering. So when the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree 2,600 years ago and realized enlightenment, he had an interesting problem. He had this very deep, very spiritual experience that frankly cannot be put into words. And yet, if he wanted to share it with the rest of the world, he had to do exactly that. He had to take this very deep, very personal thing that he had that was beyond words, beyond comprehension, and then talk about it. 
So in his compassion and his wisdom, he did that first using the four noble truths of Buddhism, which are essentially the starting point of how we see the world and how we interact with it. And these four noble truths state life is suffering, suffering is caused by desire, the way to end suffering is to end desire, the way to end desire is the noble eightfold path. And today we'll be focusing largely on the first noble truth, which states life is suffering. Now, I generally get some pushback when I recite that truth, and that's understandable because it's very harsh and very pessimistic sounding. Uh, but first, we should realize that when I say life is suffering, that is a summation of a teaching that Buddha gave 2,600 years ago. He didn't speak in pithy one-liners. He gave talks and discourses that lasted several hours, or in some cases, several days. So the first noble truth, life is suffering, actually comes from the fire sermon, which is a talk he gave. Uh, it depends on the translation. Sometimes he's speaking to the Lord Brahma, who is a Hindu god, and explaining the life circumstances of human beings. Sometimes he's speaking to his monastics. Sometimes he's speaking to both. But the point is, it's a teaching he gave describing what our situation on earth is as human beings. And I'll very briefly uh, read from that sermon. He states, and this is the Buddha speaking, bhikkhus, bhikkhu being a word for monks, all is burning. And what is the all that is burning? The eye is burning. Visible forms are burning. Eye consciousness is burning. Eye contact is burning. Also, whatever is felt as pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, that arises with eye contact as its condition, that too is burning. Burning with what? Burning with the fire of greed, with the fire of hate with the fire of delusion, with birth, aging, and death, with sorrow, with lamentation, with pain, grief, and despair, it is burning. So what Buddha, in his wisdom, is saying, and he goes on to not only talk about our sight, but to talk about all of our senses, everything we see, everything we hear, everything we taste, everything we touch, everything we perceive with our mind is burning with the fires of suffering. And again, that's a very harsh, very pessimistic teaching. But what Buddha is, if anything, he is a realist. And he's trying to give us a very real, very grown-up understanding of the world so that we can deal with it in a very real, grown-up way. And much of the suffering we experience as human beings is because we don't want to deal with the suffering that exists in life. And what Buddha essentially is saying is that everything in the world is potentially a source of suffering. And that 
we need to work with that suffering skillfully because there's no way to escape it. It's always there. Joy and suffering exist, not separate from each other, but in the same place and at the same time. Whether we experience the joy of a situation or the suffering of that same situation, it's a product of our mind and our mind's training. And the reason we suffer so much in life is because we want the joy but we don't want the suffering that is a natural part of life. We want to hold roses, but we don't want to deal with their thorns. We want to have pets, a pet cat, let's say, but we don't want to clean their litter box. And so instead of simply accepting that roses have thorns, and if I want to smell roses, I need to deal with the thorns skillfully, we get mad at the rose because it has the thorn. And because we're mad at the rose for having a thorn, we can't enjoy the look and the smell and the beauty of the rose. Instead of understanding that if I have a cat, part of that is me having to clean the litter box. And yes, that's unpleasant. And yes, it smells. But that just goes with having an animal in my home. We get mad at the litter box or we get mad at the cat. And that creates suffering where there doesn't need to be suffering. So if we think of it this way, there is the natural suffering that comes simply from living life. And then there's the additional unnecessary suffering that comes from us trying to avoid the first type of suffering. Whereas if we simply understand that everything is burning with greed, with anger, with hate, with birth, with aging, sickness, death, etc. If we simply accept that and deal with that, all the other unnecessary suffering that we cope with goes away. If I accept that I have to clean the litter box, it's not a source of suffering anymore. If I accept that roses have thorns, then I learn to hold them in a way where they don't prick me. If I accept that part of having a delicious meal is I need to wash the dishes later, well, now the dishes aren't such a problem. But if I I try to avoid that suffering, the washing the dishes, and I let them pile up in the sink, and now they're crusted and dirty, and there's things growing on them. Now it's a problem where there didn't need to be one. So what Buddha is simply saying when he says life is suffering is that, yes, there are unpleasant things that happen in life. That's just a part of it. But if we accept that it's a part of it, we learn to not make it worse. So when we look at Buddhist training, when we look at chanting, when we look at bowing, when we look at meditation, when we look at enlightenment, many people make the mistake of seeing it as a form of escape. That if I realize enlightenment, then I won't suffer any longer. If I practice spirituality well enough, then I'll never experience anger. I'll never experience sadness. I'll never experience grief. And that's simply not true. We know that if we look at the Buddha and his life, the founder of this religion 
realized enlightenment before any of us, and yet he still had loved ones who died. He still had monastics who misbehaved. He still had toxic relatives, some of them who tried to kill him. His homeland was invaded three times. Buddha experienced suffering after he realized enlightenment. So we will experience suffering even in the midst of our own enlightenment. The goal isn't escape. The goal is integration. How can we dive into the fire? How can we move through the suffering of our lives? How can we dance in the flames? That's the goal of spiritual practice. To see the fire and not be afraid of it. To learn how to use it effectively. So instead of burning us, it keeps us warm. Instead of causing us suffering, it creates light for us in the darkness. That's the goal. Not escapism, integration. And we do that by sitting with our suffering. This is the goal of meditation, for example. This is something I often have to teach my students is because they have this idea, again, going back to escapism, that if I practice meditation correctly, I'll clear my mind and everything will disappear and I'll just sink into this deep, restful peace. And as someone who's been doing this for 10 years, I can tell you that, yes, peace is a part of the practice and you will experience that. But there will also be times where you sit and you just replay the day over and over and over again. And the goal isn't to eliminate that bad day you just had. It's just learn to sit with it and be okay with it. Yeah, today sucked. And I'm just going to make peace with the fact that I had a bad day. I'm going to return to my breathing again and again and again, not to get away from the bad day, but so that I can have peace in the midst of that bad, terrible, crappy day that I'm having. Because if we do otherwise, now we have the bad day and the suffering that comes with that, and we have the suffering that comes from us trying to escape the bad day. Because we had a bad day and we really want our spouse, let's say, to say something that will make it better, but maybe they don't. So now we're mad at the spouse. And we're mad at the spouse and we really just want to cuddle with our cat on the couch, but oh, they used the litter box and now we have to empty it. So now we're mad at the cat. And now we just want to sit down in bed and relax and go to sleep, but the sheets are dirty and we have to do laundry. So now we had a bad day and we're mad at the spouse and we're mad at the cat and we're mad at the bed. So one source of suffering, a bad day, turned into four. But if we simply understand that bad days happen, that life is filled with bad days, burning with them, in fact, then we can be at peace with it. Today sucked. Maybe tomorrow will be better. But I'm going to find peace in the midst of this bad day, in the same way that Buddha found peace in the midst of all the suffering he experienced. And when he says life is suffering, we have to remember that Buddha lived in a different time than we did. Okay, He had it, to be frank, much harder. Uh, he lived in a time where most people were only one failed crop or one bad hunt away from starvation. He lived in a very hot, humid part of the world, and he didn't have air conditioning. 
He lived in an environment where if your neighbor stole your goods or attacked you, there was no police force to come and save you. If the military came in from another country and attacked your village, you were on your own, where there were literally dead bodies rotting on the side of the road because there was no one to care for them. And yet, he realized enlightenment and he found peace, nirvana, as we call it in Buddhism, in the midst of all of that. So in the midst of our own bad days, where we're suffering, where the flames are getting to us and we don't know what to do or how to do it, it's helpful, I've found in my own practice, to just think back to the time of the Buddha and remind ourselves that if he could find peace in the midst of all that, in the midst of death, in the midst of starvation, in the midst of conquering armies and relatives trying to kill him, if he could find peace, then we can do that as well. And we're fortunate enough to have 2,600 years of teachings to help us do exactly that. Namu Amidabutsu. That was so beautiful. So I was wondering, can you kind of walk us through a couple of everyday examples, perhaps like not giving any names, but some of the examples that you see with people around you in everyday life so that people can just kind of marinate more in this of of how to apply it and where to see it? Sure, absolutely. Well, so there are two ways to deal with uh, personal suffering that Buddha addressed. One is through our actions. And he speaks about this in the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, The Noble Eightfold Path is kind of the praxis or the practical application of the Four Noble Truths. And in the Noble Eightfold Path, we have right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So we have the morality teachings, which are uh, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And this is just what we're doing in our daily lives. And we want to act and behave in such a way that we create less suffering for ourselves and for the people around us. Now, in addition to that, we have what's often called the wisdom teachings of Buddhism which are right view and right intention. So I'll speak about those separately. I'll start with the wisdom teachings. Uh, Right view is simply how we view the world. Everything starts with right view. If we don't see the world clearly, then we can't behave in it in a way that's helpful. Often compare it to looking through a window. If the window is dirty, it doesn't matter what's on the other side. It'll be tainted in some way. Right? So we have to clean the window of our minds. And we do that through right view. And that's what the first noble truth is. Understanding that the world is burning with suffering, developing that view. And then that from that comes the right intention of wanting to interact with it in a way that relieves some of that suffering. Right? It all fits together like puzzle pieces. And part of right view is something I call right expectations which is just seeing the world clearly and wanting to work with it in a way that is helpful, but also it's true to the nature of the thing. So when we talk about developing a holistic view of suffering, uh, I personally very much enjoy gardening. 
I enjoy growing plants. Uh, in my book, I talk about this and about my experiences working on farms and what that was like and the Dharma teachings I gained from growing plants and working on a tiny house and working on a waste oil furnace, things of that nature. But as much as I enjoy farming and gardening and growing plants, there are parts of that experience I don't enjoy. Uh, one of them is working with a wheelbarrow. So you have to move soil, you have to move hay all over the garden, right? So that you can grow your vegetables. And part of that is taking these big 10, 20 pound bags of soil, throwing them in a wheelbarrow, lifting it and taking it wherever it needs to go. Then you empty out the soil, rake it so it's smooth, repeat, right? And this is a deeply unpleasant experience for me. It's hot, my shoulders and my back hurt afterwards when I'm done, I'm getting bitten by mosquitoes and horse flies. It's suffering, right? But in order for me to have the joy that comes from growing vegetables, I have to work with the wheelbarrow. Again, going back to my talk, I can't have the joy of growing my food unless I have the suffering of dealing with the wheelbarrow, right? And if I had this expectation that I shouldn't, I should be happy every time I'm working with this wheelbarrow and that if I'm peaceful, if I'm not peaceful while I'm doing it, then I'm doing something wrong, then that becomes additional suffering, right? Because I'm suffering and I'm suffering more because I'm mad that I'm suffering. But if I just have this growing up adult expectation of, okay, I have to work with the wheelbarrow. It's going to be heavy. It's going to suck. And that's okay. Well, now I have acceptance. And from that acceptance comes peace. It's still hot. My back still hurts. The pain is still there. It's still real. But it's lessened because my expectations have changed. I'm okay with the suffering of working with the wheelbarrow. Right? So again, working with our expectations is important. Um, another example would be working with family. Um, so it's the holidays. We're all interacting with our family members. And sometimes that's joyful. Sometimes it's not. But they're still our family. So what do we do? And I personally had this expectation when I first started my practice that I'm going to be deeply enlightened and I'm going to be so spiritual and I'm going to interact with my family and they're never going to get on my nerves ever again. And all those sibling rivalries are going to go away and we're just going to be happy and loving and everything will be perfect. And that's just not a realistic expectation because they're human beings just like I am and they have their own things going on. So I had to adjust my own expectations and I had to accept people for how they are, right? In the same way that I have to accept the fact that dealing with a wheelbarrow sucks. Well, sometimes I have to accept the fact that I have difficult relatives and that's okay. They can be who they are and that's fine. I simply have to adjust my expectations of them so that who they are doesn't cause me suffering. So for example, I have a relative who is not the best at keeping in contact. So I try to call them regularly to see how they're doing, to check in. And for whatever reason, they don't answer the phone. They just, it's not their thing. I send them text messages. They don't reply to the text messages. 
Okay. So for a long time, this was a source of suffering for me because again, I had these expectations of they should be answering my phone calls. They should be answering my emails and why aren't they doing this? And I'm trying so hard. And I want to be clear. It's not wrong to think that people should answer the phone when we call. However, if they're not answering the phone, at a certain point, we just have to accept the world as it is, right? So with this particular relative, I had to adjust my expectations and just understand that, look, they're not going to answer the phone. Me calling and expecting them to answer the phone is causing suffering. So I'll just see them on holidays and I'll be happy with that interaction. So again, there's the suffering of them not answering the phone. Then there's the additional suffering from me saying, well, they should be answering the phone. I can't make them answer the phone, but I can learn to practice acceptance and be okay with the fact that they're not. And I can make the most of our time together when we see each other at birthdays, at Christmas, at Thanksgiving, etc. Same with gardening and the wheelbarrow. I can't change the fact that it's hot while I'm dealing with the wheelbarrow, but I can change my expectations, practice acceptance so that I'm okay dealing with the wheelbarrow. Not to say I like it, but I just understand that it is what it is. And if I was going to reword the first noble truth, which I wouldn't, I think it's great. But another way to say it is simply life is what it is. And we suffer when we don't accept life as it is, when we don't practice acceptance. And when we talk about right view and right intention, and I go in this deeper in my book, what we're doing is learning to accept life as it is. And then that creates the foundation for the moral teachings of right view, right action, right livelihood. And that creates the foundation for the meditative teachings of right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So I say I would say those are two examples of how we create suffering for ourselves, just using myself as an example. So I want to go into a couple different parts of this. One is, but we're not, we're we're still distinguishing, and I just want to kind of emphasize this that we're not saying, okay, so listener, you're a business owner, and because life is suffering, it's okay to pay your people, you know, the lowest possible that's their suffering in life that you're imparting to them. And, you know, or look at the world and say life is suffering. So, oh, those people who are lower on the totem pole than I am, oh, I guess it's just what it is, right? We're looking at this for our individual life. And we're saying that you have to use discernment to bring this acceptance in. And I've been struggling a lot. My daughter is growing up so much through 2021 and just changing into this tween teenager right in front of my eyes. And, you know, this little girl who used to love to cuddle with me and wanted oodles of my time and just wanted to play all the time, wants to be shut in her room, now locks the door behind her every single time. And 
doesn't want that time together. And so I'm, I, I'm seeing this unfold in my own life where I'm having a really hard time, like accepting that my little girl is getting bigger and that she doesn't need me and that I don't have the luxury of her time whenever I want it anymore. And I am so fighting this. I am so resisting this. And yet the more that I just try and hold on to her and make her play and spend time with us, the more she pushes away. So I am, I'm going to really incorporate this in of just practicing acceptance between now and the next time that we talk. I'm wondering how you feel about the escapism. People are using their iPhones and technology more than ever. Uh, it's interesting. You know, today is December 6, 2020. And there was like a New Yorker cover that came out with this woman on a Zoom call. And she looks, you know, perfect from the shoulders up, but then there's like disaster and chaos swirling around her apartment. Just everything's undone. The litter box has not been changed. You know, she's a mess everywhere else in her life. And I think that we can all relate right to suffering in some way, shape or form in our lives right now. Do you feel that we're trying to escape a lot out of doing the daily things that we need to take care of in our lives through technology and just being online? Sure, sure, absolutely. I also kind of want to go back to something you said earlier, because I think it was very wise when you spoke about just because you're a business owner and life is suffering doesn't mean you pay your employees poorly or Just because you're doing well and life is suffering doesn't mean you ignore the people who are lower on the totem pole. And that's 100% correct. And Buddha did address this because, and this is something, unfortunately, that does happen in spiritual communities. It's called spiritual bypassing. And what happens is people think that because we are spiritual practitioners, then all the other things don't matter or that they're unimportant, or that we shouldn't care. So, and this is the escapism I was worrying about earlier, this idea that, like you said, life is suffering, so if people aren't being paid a fair wage, then, oh well. Uh, Life is suffering, so if there are people who are being oppressed, or who are not being treated well, then, oh well. And Buddha didn't teach that. He taught the wisdom teachings. But he also taught the moral teachings, right speech, right action, right livelihood, which could just as easily be called the compassion teachings, right? So we have wisdom in Buddhism, which is us seeing the world as it is. And then there's the compassion of us trying to make it better. And we need both if we're going to practice the Dharma effectively. That's why Buddha taught both. If we look at his own life, This is a perfect example of this. So he realized enlightenment under the Bodhi tree, which was wisdom. And then it was compassion, which caused him to get up from the Bodhi tree, walk to Deer Park, and then begins teaching the Dharma to other people. So where would we be if Buddha had said, well, life is suffering. Oh, well, I'm going to hang out by myself. 
and even in his own life. So Buddha was an ascetic for a long time, which means he saw the body as defiled. And he was trying to escape from his body through various practices, one of them being not eating. And it's said that at a certain point, he was so skinny that he could poke his belly button and feel his spine. And what ended up happening is he didn't have any great awakening, but he did nearly starve to death and he passed out in a river. And it was only through the compassion of a milkmaid named Sujata who saw him, pulled him out of the river, fed him, and nursed him back to health that he was then able to realize enlightenment. And it was only after he realized enlightenment that he was willing and able to offer the teachings. So what if Sujata had taken that stance of, well, life is suffering, that man's about to die, oh well. Where would we be now? 2,600 years of teaching exist only because Sujata saw a suffering man and chose to help him. And then that man realized enlightenment and chose to help the rest of the world. So after we accept that the world as it is, even in the midst of that acceptance becomes, okay, let's try to make it better. Dealing with the wheelbarrow sucks, but I'm still going to grow my garden. Cleaning the litter box sucks, but I'm still going to care for my cat. That's the important piece, is that wisdom and that compassion. And then getting back to your question about us using technology as escapism, I I think that's 100% the case. Uh, I think what happens is we don't practice right view. We see the little box, and we think that's exactly how life should be, and we try to ignore everything else, right? So we're on Instagram and we see people traveling to exotic places and we see them eating delicious food and we think that our lives are wrong because we don't have that. Not understanding that the reason they have this delicious food is because someone worked very, very hard in a very hot kitchen in a restaurant to deliver it to them, right? So we see that nice thing, but we ignore the suffering that allowed it to be. Again, having that holistic view of the world. And because we don't have that, we think, well, my life's not correct because I I don't have, my food doesn't look that way. We, We see someone traveling to an exotic place, but we don't see the fact that maybe they have a relative who's supporting them, or maybe they have a successful business that allows them to have that. And but all we see is the exotic place. And I've never been there. Therefore, my life isn't good. So, again, going back to noble truths, which say suffering is caused by desire. The second noble truth, our technology is feeding our desire and that desire is creating suffering. Right. Because we desire to have the exotic trip. We desire to have the exotic food. I don't know the perfect spouse fancy clothes, whatever. And because our technology is feeding this desire, this escapism, if only I could go on this trip, I wouldn't have to deal with my messy house. We suffer as a result. Whereas if we just closed down the social media and cleaned our house, that would be much more effective in dealing with the suffering, right? But we don't want to clean the house. We want to go on the trip. 
And this just creates problems for us because we're so encapsulated with our technology that we don't want to see and accept the world as it is. Yeah, I'm laughing over here because we made this decision this year between like, are we going to move to a bigger house to accommodate all the stuff that we have? Or are we going to clean out this house? And after living here for 13 years, just kind of remodel and and do a little bit. And I had so much fun with, you know, planning all of it and remodeling the house. And, and then, you know, it, it got to the point where it was done. It took three months to do the house. And, and, and then these little messes creep up, right? There's dishes that start to accumulate and there's, you know, a bunch of papers on top of the kitchen island. And I was spending every day, you know, going around and cleaning up, which is really hard right now in the time of COVID because um, I only have three hours between the time that I drop my daughter off to school and the time that I pick her up. So I'd come home, I'd clean for an hour, have like just a little bit of time. And I started to resent it, right? I started to resent the stuff and this frustration was just kind of building inside of my being. And as I'm talking to you right now on my massage table, my Reiki table, there's three loads of laundry that need to be folded and surrounding me are three days worth of notes that I need to go through and file paperwork. And I need to practice this myself because I do have a hard time just accepting that these little things need to be done. But that resentment, I can feel that energy grow within me and how it does lead to suffering and not just suffering. But for me, I don't know if you've experienced this. But I believe that we accumulate energy in different parts of our body when we're pulling this energy through to ourselves. So for me personally, I keep my energy right here on the top of my chest. When people say it feels like you've got an elephant sitting on your chest, that's how stress feels to me. So I love, I love everything that you said. And I'm so going to practice that just accepting You know, these little things, these little pieces of suffering that I don't like, but they are the flip coin or the same token as the joy, seeing the house clean. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. You know, going back to the fire sermon, that is what Buddha was trying to get us to understand. You know, he's just really in a very savage way, I guess, just tearing the covers off. You know, I think about, you know, when I was a child and I didn't want to get from school and My mom would knock on the door and then she'd call and then finally she'd just tear the covers off, right? And now I'm cold and I have to get out of bed, whether I want to or not. And that's what he was doing, was just tearing the covers off. And look, suffering exists, deal with it. (laughs) But as we learn to accept that, then it stops being suffering. It's just a part of life. And I've, I've had those same examples. You know, my cat, I love my cat to death. His name is Enzo. I post pictures of him on Instagram and he's a very, he's a very important part of my life. I can't imagine life without him, but he's also a source of suffering. I'd be lying if I said otherwise, you know, there's the litter box I mentioned earlier. Um, I have many house plants in my house and he does his best to destroy them. Can't see this, but all of my house plants are either hanging where he can't reach or they're locked in my bathroom, right? 
And it was kind of a similar thing where I started to have resentment. It's like, why can't I just have plans? I had to just accept that, look, he's a cat. This is what cats do. If I want to have a cat, this is what I have to deal with. And then it all went away because instead of being mad at him for being who he is, it's just like, okay, well, let me hop on Amazon and see some different things I can use to be creative to like protect my house plants. And then I bought some clothes racks and hung them up on them and they actually look pretty cool. And these mothers are in the bathroom with a grill light. And, you know, I like to tell people I poop in a jungle now. So it's, it's a very, very nice thing. But I had to practice that acceptance. It's just, you know, this is part of having a cat, just like, you know, having dirty laundry is part of having a household. But just just accepting it, you know, this this is life and it's okay. And we're not doing anything wrong. I think where we really struggle is we think if we're suffering, then we're not right. Right. If there's laundry that needs to be done, then clearly I'm not doing it enough or I'm not doing it correctly, you know. If my cat is destroying my houseplants and he's not well-trained and we just have to learn that, no, this is supposed to be here. And I just have to learn to work with it again, integration, not, not escapism. It's interesting that sense of acceptance brings in this automatic, like click of peace though, because when you sit there and say, I can't control my daughter and whether or not she wants to spend time with me, but I'm going to love her as much as I can in the way that she's going to accept and find acceptance there within your own heart. Like it automatically just relieves this pressure up and off my chest. And when I think to myself, okay, well, I've got these three loads of laundry to fold. I've got all of this paperwork to put away. This is a part of my life. I'm going to accept it. There is this lifting up of energy where your energy does feel lightened. Right. No, a hundred percent. Very true. Uh, and I've had that same experience with my relative. I mentioned earlier you know, I'm getting very angry and very frustrated. Why, why won't they answer my calls, right? But when I just accept that, look, this is who they are. This is what's happening. All of a sudden, I'm okay, right? They're still not answering my calls, but now that I'm not hinging my happiness on whether or not they answer the call, I'm just accepting them. And like you said, loving them in a way they'll accept, then, then peacefulness comes. Yeah. Sensei, Alex. Yoko, you are the most amazing, just generous soul. Thank you so much for being here. I want to encourage everybody listening. If you got value out of today's talk, please go over to his website. It's the same old zen.com. Again, that's the same old zen.com. You can go on over to that website, make a contribution there. You can also purchase his book on Amazon. We've got all of the details in the show notes. I've read the book. You want to get the book because all that we are talking about today is not everything that's within the book. And it's really going to help you piece everything together if you have that. Sensei, thank you so much for being here. We're going to be back next week with the second part of this series. And I just want to thank you for being a blessing to all of us here. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.